Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for um, how you have blessed uh, so many in our church. And Lord, we pray that you would bless even more. We pray that uh, uh, for those who are, are having babies and are going through that, Lord, that you'd be with them through the trials and through the, the work that they have to do. And Lord, uh, for those who aren't having babies but are in a different time in their life, Lord, we pray that you would uh, be with them, Lord, comfort those uh, and, and, and bless us all, Lord, as we just want to serve you. We want to love our families, Lord. We want to be used by you in this world to, to, for people to be saved. Lord, I thank you uh, for the trials that you bring into our life because our, our lives are not perfect, but our trials, Lord, they help us to know that you're there to, to call out to you. Lord, we probably wouldn't even call out to you if our lives were just fine. But Lord, because we get these trials, Lord, your love can be seen, your power can be seen. And I thank you that you're a God that actually responds when we call. Lord, we, we need you. There's so many things that show us that we need you, but in our hearts, I pray, you would convince us that we need you. And I pray that this scripture that we read today and everything that happens today would encourage us uh, that you will answer our prayers and that you will, you will respond when your children cry out to you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, today I'm just going to tell you the lesson we're going to learn first, and then we're going to go through the scriptures, and then we're going to see that lesson kind of unfolded for us. And then I'll tell you again at the end what we learned through the whole thing. It's the best way to teach, okay? You, learn, you tell them what you're going to tell them, then you tell them, then you tell them what you told them. That's how, what they teach you in teacher school, I guess. I don't know. I never went, but <laughs> that's what I hear. So the lesson we're going to learn today, as we study the Valley of Ditches, so that's the, the, the title of today's sermon, is the Valley of Ditches, or Elisha's fourth miracle. And uh, we're going to see that God's miraculous supply of living water and victory over enemies is promised to us by the word of the Lord. But there is a requirement of us, and the requirement of us to get his living water and his victory is to dig ditches and to wait. And you're going to know what that is by the end of church today. You're going to totally understand what that means to dig ditches, and you're going to have an opportunity to dig some ditches yourself. And I hope that you take that opportunity. Digging ditches is, is going to speak of preparing a place to hold the water, preparing a place for the blessings of God to go. And humility and faith are for us the preparations of the heart to be blessed by God. Humility and faith. God doesn't bless works. He, he had a system of works set up. Do you remember what that was called? The Old Covenant. And it was the law, the Ten Commandments. You guys know those, right? And he set up the system where if you did those, if you kept those, you could be blessed. But there's a new way that Jesus inaugurated for us. It's called a new covenant. And he said, I'm doing away with the old way so that the new way can come. And in the new way, there is no works that, that earn you God's blessings. There is only heart realities. 
And these two heart realities that are so important for us to know are humility and faith. Those are the only two, well, you could call them works, but they're not works because they're just attitudes of the heart. They're relational realities. And so these two things are so important for us. And, and as we see that that's what digging ditches is, we're going to learn today that the servant of God, which is what Elisha represents, must be able to teach God's people how this works. When people think that they're serving God, but they're telling you, hey, keep the Ten Commandments, and that's what makes God the most happy, is if you keep the Ten Commandments all the time, they're wrong. They're wrong. Because they know that, or they don't know, that Jesus already kept the Ten Commandments for you, and he will give you his keeping, his obedience, his life, so that you can have that in your own heart. And that doesn't come to you by you working harder to please God. It comes to you by humility and faith. God says, I give grace to the humble, but I oppose the proud. So that's our introduction. It just kind of setting the stage for how God works. He wants to give a blessing and for us to receive it, we need to dig the ditches. So let's see what our scripture actually says here in 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 1. Well, we'll start in verse 1. I'm going to read a bit, and then I'll explain briefly how to understand it and what's going on here. Now, Jehoram, was the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. But not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. So first setting the stage, Elisha has just become the new prophet in the land of Israel. Elijah was the prophet before, and he had made uh, famines, and he did all kinds of miracles, and Elisha is now coming on the scene, and he is doing miracles as well. But they represented two different things. Elijah represented Jesus, and Elisha represents the servant of Jesus, or the church, us. Okay, And there are different kinds of miracles that the two accomplish. And so Elijah was living during the time of this guy Ahab, this king up in Israel. And Elijah was a prophet to Israel. So Elijah would walk around, and Ahab was pretty much the worst human being ever to live. He was completely evil. He would take the Lord's priests and slaughter them. He was a terrible, terrible guy. And his wife was a woman named Jezebel. You ever heard of her? She's the worst evil king. If you, call, if you name your daughter Jezebel, it's not a good idea. It means she was a terrible, terrible woman in our day and age. Well, the, the, this king the, had a son, and that's Jehoram, and that's where we're at now. Okay, Ahab and Je Jezebel are gone. His son Jehoram is king up in Israel, and so that's what is going on right now. Now, Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. So down a little bit east and south of Israel is a land named Moab, and that's where we shift our attention to now. Misha was king of Moab, and he was a sheep breeder. And he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all of Israel. 
Then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and said, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go up with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, Which way shall we go up? And he answered, By the wilderness of Edom. So you have another king introduced here. You have Moab. They've, they've been kind of like, they had to pay a tribute to Israel because Israel was stronger at this point. But Israel had divided itself into two kingdoms, if you remember. There was the northern kingdom of Israel, and they were pretty evil. They were into idolatry. That's this King Ahab and King Jehoram. And then there was a southern kingdom, and that southern kingdom was, had a king named Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was awesome. He loved the Lord, he served the Lord, and he was, was, had the bigger part of Israel called Judah. And they were the part that he was a descendant of King David. Okay, So Jehoram says, hey, would you like to get together and, and go with me to kind of fix this political problem I have? And Jehoshaphat says, yeah, I'm, I'm down. Let's do it because I, I want to kind of heal. We're, we're one family. We are Israel. I wanna, he wanted to work on healing that relationship. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they marched on the roundabout route seven days, and there was no water for the army nor the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel, this is Jehoram, he said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them to the hands of Moab. So God just wants to kill us. I'm just going to go outside and eat worms. He's, he's bummed out, okay? But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So here we just see briefly, there's two perspectives of these two different kings. One king was a godly king, one king's a worldly king. And the worldly king had the perspective that when a trial comes into my life, God is mad at me, and so I should run away from God. The other king, the godly king, Jehoshaphat, he had the perspective that when a trial comes into my life, I should seek the Lord. One of them said, I should run away from God. The other one said, I should seek the Lord. Which one are you? It's huh? a good question. In a time of crisis, do you say, everything's against me, God is, is mad at me, or do you seek the Lord? See, Jehoram, he thought God was a mean, angry old man. And Jehoshaphat thought he was a loving father. The way you see God has a dramatic effect on who you are as a person and what you do. If you understand his true character, which is a loving father, you will understand that to seek him in your crisis is the most important thing. Well, he does here. He seeks him. So we see now. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. So they all go down to Elisha. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. He's, he's not too happy to see Jehoram. But the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them to the hand of Moab. Basically saying, I have no idea what's going on here, but I'm upset. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, 
Surely, were it not that, that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you, nor see you. But now bring me a musician. So Elisha, he's very honest about the lives that these two kings have lived. One was godly and the other had been totally into idolatry, didn't know God or believe in God. One was uh, served God and the other had served demons. Elisha's not, he's not making any excuses. He, Elisha doesn't think all people are the same. In fact, they are defined by what they have worshipped in their life. He understands that. And Elisha, but even though he can divide people and he can say godly, ungodly, he still knows that his ministry is to bring all people to the Lord. You don't have to agree with everything people do in order to bring them to the Lord, to serve them. You don't have to be on the same page on everything to encourage someone, hey, you need the Lord. You don't have to respect their lives or their choices or their life of rebellion that they've lived to do your job, which is to lovingly bring them to Jesus. And so what does he do? He asks for a musician. What does that mean? That's kind of random, don't you think? This was so that he could praise God and give thanks to God. And God loves to hear his people sing. Remember I said we were going to talk about this when we started worship today? Elisha was committed to worshiping God before he saw an answer to this problem. And that is such a wonderful lesson for us. To worship God first. I love that song that's on the radio. I think Lauren Daigle, the first song that says, Before I bring my need, I will bring my heart. And before I lift my cares, I will lift my hands. I love those words in that song. Why do we sing songs at church? Why do we sing praises here at church? Because praising God is the highest and greatest thing any human can engage in in this world. Heaven, heaven, think about heaven. When we hear descriptions of heaven in the Bible, what is everyone doing all the time? Singing. Heaven is simply praising God with perfect ability, perfect understanding, and perfect access. And praise now on earth is rehearsal for our eternal song. Um, actually, that's the beginning of a quote by Spurgeon. Spurgeon quote, Spurgeon quote. That's right. So he says, Praise is the rehearsal for our eternal song. By grace we learn to sing, and in the glory we continue to sing. Some people go to church. This is another Spurgeon quote. So this is double Spurgeon quote. Spurgeon quote. This is a poem, though. So I thought I would share this poem with you. Some go to church to take a walk. Some go there to laugh and talk. Some go there to meet a friend. Some go there uh, to time to spend. I don't understand old people English. Some go there to meet a lover. Some go there to fault, a fault to cover. Some go there for speculation. Some go there for observation. Some go there to doze and nod. Norm. <laughs> And uh, the wise go there to worship God, to worship God. We need to praise God with all our heart and strength in life. To praise Jesus 
we have to empty ourselves. So when we're singing songs, you got to think about this. It is embarrassing to sing songs. How many of you would like to come up here and sing a song for everybody? Jarrett would love to, but he can't right now. <laughs> He's in timeout. But <laughs> it, it's embarrassing. Like, it, nobody who likes public speaking. Anyone just love public speaking, standing up in front? BK is learning there. You, you like it. Okay. Not very many of us. Very few, and it's really the weird ones. So I, I don't like it either. I've grown to like it. I, I, grow, I, I love you guys, and so that's why I love getting up to, to share with you what the Lord has given me this week. But, but it, it can be embarrassing. But as we're worshiping the Lord, we have to be embarrassed. That's part of the point. It's okay. You can't be mindful of your status and your image and what other people think of you because we're having a meeting with the Lord of the universe, the judge of everybody. And he says, come and worship me. And you have to let go of all your focus on your heart and your own self. And you have to give God his glory because he's worth it. He's worthy of praise. Well, what do I get from worshiping God? It doesn't matter. Well, I don't like the music. I don't like the songs. I don't care. Praise him anyway. He deserves to be worshipped. If I talk about something that is cool, that I think is cool, I, I must praise it or I feel I'm doing an injustice to it. So if I see, like, I don't know, whatever I'm into or not into, I'll just say I'm into cars and I see a really cool car and I go up to my friend and I say, hey, I saw this car and it was great. It was neat. It had this engine. It had these details. And I would talk about it. Why? Because I believe it is worth it to communicate to you what I think about this object. Well, God, he's the perfect one. He's the almighty. And so everything about him deserves to be talked about. And C.S. Lewis wrote this book on, called Reflections on the Psalms, and it's really great. And in a couple of them, he, he talks about praise. In one of them called a, a Reflection on Praise, he starts talking about how all men worship and we're really good about it. And it's when you talk about something that you love. Or have you been to the Denver Museum of Art and heard the, the hooty fluty people talking about the art? And they're like, it's so neat. And this, the brushstrokes speak of the ambiance, blah, 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 blah. And they talk about it like, like you should know all this stuff, right? And in fact, they look down on you if you don't consider this art amazing. Because you don't really understand art if you don't think this Rembrandt is just amazing or this Da Vinci, or I don't, is Da Vinci an artist? He's a scientist. I don't really know what I'm talking about. But they look down on you if you don't know how good the art is, right? Well, it's so cool because the one who humbles himself and worships God, they're like the person who understands the art, I get it, she says. I love that. Light bulbs, bing. And when we don't worship God, and when we stand there in church just like, okay, this is the part that takes a while, 
and I'm not really engaged and I'm not really pouring my heart out to him. We're the person who's walking through the art museum saying, looks like a bunch of splotches. I'm uncultured. I don't understand the message. I don't understand the character. I don't understand the hard work, whatever it might be. Well, that's a, a word on worship. We consider a person dense if they don't understand something that's really cool in our mind. We're like, uh, yeah, I'm not going to really be able to connect with you because you don't get how cool this thing is. Well, with the Lord, it's the exact same thing. He deserves all the worship. So Elisha, he brings this musician out so that he can get his mind focused on the Lord. I think he's kind of upset about seeing Jehoram because Jehoram was such a uh, mean guy and such an idolatrous person. And, and Elisha needs to make sure his heart is right, so he worships the Lord. Now, look, now it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. Make this valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet this valley shall be filled with water, so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver you from the Moabites, or deliver the Moabites into your hand. And you shall also attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall cut down every good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. So let's think for a minute about digging ditches. What could that mean to us spiritually? This is written in the Old Testament, and he actually wanted them to dig ditches. I don't expect you to go home today and dig a ditch in your yard in obedience to the Lord. That's not what we're talking about. This is spiritually discerned. This is in our hearts. What does this mean? Well, you have to break up the hard ground when you dig a ditch, right? You start with a hoe, and you, you, you get the, the ground softened up to dig a ditch. And this reminds us of how we need to see our sin, we need to observe our sin. We need to be convinced of our failure to keep God's commands and his law perfectly. When we, we can't think that we're just okay. When we think we're okay, we, we, our hearts get hard to the need we have for God's water. But when we soften them up, we, we put that hoe in, it hurts. When we look at the law and we look at our performance and say, I deserve death. I deserve death. And you're like, well, I'm not as bad as Hitler. That's not the judge. That's not the line. What is the line for how good a person should be? Does anyone know? Jesus is the one way to say it. Perfection. God is perfect, he created us, and so his standard is perfection. One sin tarnishes a human being. And the penalty for sin is death. Death. Okay, so if you break a rule, you are now a rule breaker. And the Lord says, you break one command, it's just the same as breaking them all. Well, I've never murdered anyone, so God can't be that mad at me. No, you've lied, and you've stolen, and you've done just about everything else. And Jesus says, if you've ever even hated someone in your heart, you're guilty of murder as well. We are rule breakers. 
We're sinners, every single one of us. And to the extent that you acknowledge that and you see it and you're convinced of it in your own heart and you're not trying to wiggle away from it and you're not trying to say, well, you don't know my parents and you don't know my kids and you don't know my life and my boss and my situations. The more we make excuses, the harder our hearts get. So the first step in getting this water and digging ditches is to soften the ground. Repent. See yourself. See the sin. Be convinced in your heart. And then, as you soften the ground, the next step, step number two, is to dig out the dirt. Take the shovel and dig out the dirt. What did God make us out of? Dirt. What he's saying here is this is an active way to be humble. You recognize your failure and sin, and then you dig out the things that we filled our lives with that are not God or not godly. We, all our trust in self and all our trust in our degrees, all our trust in our talents, all our trust in our abilities and our experience and all our standing and all our uh, money and all our possessions, we have to dig that out and empty the ditch. The ditch is kind of already there. You just have to dig it out. You know, some people say that the sculpture, they look at a piece of rock and they're like, the sculpture's already there. I just have to free it from its prison of rock. I'm not an artist like that, but Jay would say that. I, it, the, the ditch is there. Our hearts are there, but they're filled up with dirt. So the second step is to Empty ourselves of self-trust, of self-sufficiency. Empty it out, empty it out, empty it out, okay? So what these two things show of digging ditches, it shows what we talk about all the time, which is humility and faith, right? It shows the humility when you empty your heart of self. Humility isn't thinking bad of yourself. It's not thinking of yourself. Does that make sense, the difference? Humility isn't, I am such a horrible person. It's, I got to empty myself of thoughts of myself. It doesn't matter what I'm going through. It doesn't matter my life. I'm here to honor God. I'm here because I need God. It's all about God and what God would pour into my empty ditch, my heart. Humility emptying your heart of self. Second, faith. It shows faith because you wait on the promised water. You empty it out with no promise. God said, you're not going to hear the rain. You're not going to hear the wind. You're not going to see the rain. You're, it's happening way far away on some mountain, and it's going to come in like a flash flood for them. And the same thing happens with us. We don't see how just being humble and having faith works in this world, but it does. God says, trust me, it's a promise of mine to you. If you humble yourself and dig the ditch in faith, I will fill it. It's not on you. All you have to do is obediently humble yourself and trust me. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do a rain dance. That's works. You don't have to say magic words. You don't have to be something special. I love you, and so I have promised you an answer. You just need to humble yourself, humility, 
and you have to trust me. Faith. Okay? He does the miracle he promises to do. This is how we live in the new covenant today. Isn't this amazing? This is written way back before Jesus came, yet it's a wonderful illustration of all that Jesus built for us, this new covenant, where he accomplishes it for us. It's not going to church or reading the Bible uh, more than your neighbor that God blesses. That's not digging ditches. It's not wearing hemp clothes or having a monk haircut. Those aren't digging ditches. It's not even the beard. Well, shows faith. I don't know. Well, I've reserved judgment on that one. Just kidding. Uh, humility and faith is it. And here what we're learning here is that the servant of God, what Elisha represents us, the church, the servant of Jesus has to teach people that that's God's way. When you go to someone and say, you've got to try just a little bit harder to change your life, uncle, brother, father, son, just try a little bit harder, you are not teaching them how to dig ditches. You're teaching them how to dig wells, their own wells. And what does the Bible say about digging your own well? It'll end up broken and empty. That's in Isaiah. We'll, we'll study that. Or Jeremiah chapter 3. We'll study that another time. But we teach them how to dig ditches. What do I need to do to obtain God's grace or God's help? How do I do this Christian thing? You dig ditches. You live with humility and faith. Now it happened in the morning. When the grain offering was offered, highlight that if you got a highlighter, look, remember that. It happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly water came by way of Edom and the land was filled with water. This is very important for us to see that the miracle has a very close relationship with something called sacrifice, but not your sacrifice. Whose sacrifice? Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And they had this thing every morning called the grain offering, which speaks of who? Jesus. So Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And his sacrifice is what brings us life. This miracle happened at that time, not because God just picked a time and put it in the Bible and said, that's what time it was. I'm just being accurate. No, it has a meaning and a spiritual meaning. And the meaning is because it is very important for you to know. This water can come to you because of Jesus' sacrifice and nothing else. That's where hope is. His death on the cross makes water and, and grace that we need available to us. They pierced the side and what came out? Water and blood. Blood to cover our sins. Water to fill us with new life. Oh, it's so good. It just makes so much sense. His life is given to us to replace the poisoned life with his pure and holy life. So good. Uh, a couple of verses to just cross-reference with that would be Colossians 3, 4. Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Who is our life? And then in Romans eight eleven. Romans 8, 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit which dwells in you. That basically describes the whole process. He raised Jesus from the dead, so that life that raised Jesus from the dead is now made available to us to live in us. So God gave us this story way back in 2 Kings 3 to point us to the necessity of the sacrifice of Jesus and his life for us. It's not, he never said, you got to do this on your own, you got to work hard to get my blessings. No. He says, Jesus got it for you, and he gives it to you by the Holy Spirit. Now, how do we get the Holy Spirit? Someone tell me. Ask, right? You ask in humility and faith. You ask. Now, we're going to finish up the chapter real quick, okay? It says here, when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up and fought against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered, and they stood at the border. Then they rose up early in the morning, and the sun was shining on the water. And the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, it is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now, therefore, Moab to the spoil. So when they came to the camp of Israel... Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites. So they all fled before them, and they entered their land, killing the Moabites. And they destroyed the cities, and each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. And they stopped up all the springs of water and cut down all the good trees. But they left the stones of Ker Hasah intact. However, the slinger surrounded and attacked it. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. Then they took his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel. So they departed from him and returned to their own land. Isn't it funny how there's this miraculous misunderstanding about the blood. There's this miraculous misunderstanding about the blood. For some people, for the enemies of God and God's people, they saw the blood and it spoke to them of death. Oh, they must have killed each other. They saw the blood. They, oh, it's, it's, they must have killed each other. It spoke to them of death. And to others, to the real children of God, the blood was water and it brought them life and victory. It saved them from death. You see, Jesus offers his life to every human being in the world. Everyone. But only those who dig ditches get it. Only those who will respond to his call get the, their hearts filled. The others who fill up their hearts and don't dig ditches and, and don't trust in the Lord, they, they don't get it. And, and it's weird to them. And we coming to church on a Sunday and giving our lives and, and serving the Lord with everything, it's just weird. And they don't respond well to it. We need to dig ditches daily. We need to do it. You need to assess what you need from your loving Father. 
What areas of your heart need changing? Power. What areas of your heart need healing? What areas of your life need healing or saving power? God says, when you have this crisis, seek me. Don't run away from me. See what your good father would do for you. Now, this reminded me in a weird way of Luke chapter 18. And there was this uh, certain ruler who came to Jesus, Luke 18, verse 18. I'll just read it to you guys. But there was a certain ruler saying, good teacher, he comes to Jesus. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus knew what he was going to say, but Jesus is such a master at getting to the heart of an issue. Because it's not about performance. Jesus is not trying to get him to understand that he he needs to do something. He thinks it's about performance. Jesus is going to convince him right now that it's not about performance. It's about digging ditches. And so Jesus, in just a word, is going to teach him how to dig ditches. Watch this. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Jesus told him, you got to dig a ditch. The problem isn't with your performance. Everyone is terrible. Everyone's sinners. The problem isn't with that. You're, you're a good guy. I'm not going to even argue with you about your performance. But I am going to tell you one thing. Your heart is too full to receive the water that I want to give you. You need to dig a ditch. And what's in your heart, brother, is money. You trust in it. You will not let it go. What is in your heart, what's in your ditch, I'm going to tell you right now, is the one thing you don't want to get rid of. That's what's in your heart. It's the one thing you don't want to surrender to the Lord and say, it's out of my control. I'm going to trust you, Father, in everything you say. I am not in control anymore. Whatever keeps you from saying that is what needs to be dug out. It's what needs to be dug out. The problem was in the heart. There was no humility and faith with this guy. There was obedience to the law, but there was no humility and faith. He didn't need God, and he didn't trust God. He came and said, Jesus, you're, the, you're good. And Jesus is like, all right, so you think I'm God. Okay, we can run with this. We can go with this. But you don't trust me. I'm telling you the one thing you need, and you're like, oh, come on. You don't want to give me that thing. I know in my life, there was something I was really afraid of when I was 20, 21, 22 years old. And God let that thing happen to me. And I know, I know now that I'm free from fear. 
On this side, it's so great to be free. Jesus has freed me from being afraid of this thing that I was attached to, that I was like, I'm going to hold on to this and I'm not going to let go of this dream or idea or possession. It's mine. I worked so hard for it, God. You wouldn't take that away. That's just mean. Ugh. God is absolutely willing to rip it out because I asked him. I asked him, Lord, make me holy. I prayed that. And he said, okay. Wow, that's never happened before in my life. I've never cracked my, in my life, I've never cracked my knuckles. Never. That was like the Lord gave me an illustration. That was perfect. So, so there's this guy in Luke and this rich ruler. He doesn't need God. But my question to you is, do you need God? Do you? Do you feel convicted by the law? Are you convinced you're a sinner? Good. Does your conscience convict you? Have you been hurt by others or by circumstances? Has there been hurt in your life? Good. Then you need God. You qualify. That's the qualification. Oh, when people think you need to go to Bible college or you need to have read the entire Bible in order to call out to the Lord, it's so wrong. You just need to be broken and hurt and humble. And then do you trust God is the second question for today. Have you seen his promises in his word? I mean, today we've talked a lot about them. So the question really is, will you put your trust in the Lord alone? God's water is coming and his grace is available. And all Jesus requires is obedience, he says, to dig some ditches. We don't say, that's not the way. I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it my way. No, we must surrender. Full surrender. And that brings us today to something very special. We have a, a couple here today that want to obey the Lord and, uh, and dig a ditch in humility and faith. So, Diane and Ted, do you desire to get married today? Wonderful. Would you come up here, guys? We're going to do something special today. Maybe you didn't even know we were going to do this, but this is pretty exciting. You guys just come on up here. And uh, here, I'm just going to do this. And you just stand here, Ted, right here. Diane here. Right here, right here, right here. You can look at each other. This is all really informal. Back up just a little so everyone can see you. Back up right here. I'm right here. Okay. All right. You can hold hands. That's sweet. <laughs> this is Diane and Ted, if you don't know, and the Sandra sister. And, and um, they've been coming here for a couple weeks, and, and we've been talking. We've been praying uh, that the Lord would be moving in their heart, would be blessing them. And so today, they've decided that they want to take a step of faith and honor the Lord in their relationship by making that commitment that he talks about. So we're going to talk just a moment about marriage because marriage has been ordained by God. This is his plan. It's not our plan. This isn't our idea. This is what he says we can do to dig a ditch, to prepare for blessing from him. And, you know, He designed it, he defined it, and he develops it through the years. And we're going to talk for just a minute about how God gave us marriage. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 when God made Adam and Eve. And he said, it is not good that man should be alone, but I'll make, her help, make him a helper comparable to him. And this shows that marriage is a gift of completion. It's not good for man to be alone. And Ted, I think you may agree. 
It's not good for man to be alone. And then in, in the next verse, he said, Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, and he brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called every living creature, that was his name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the air and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper comparable to him found. So God gives Adam this little job of naming the animals. And as Adam is going about his business, he sees the two elephants and he sees the two rhinoceros and the two monkeys and the two gorillas and the two ants. And, and he gives a name to all of them. And then he starts to think, where is my partner? Where is my completion? And so this is God making him aware of his need. We never get married until we know that we need it. And it's a work of God to convince us that we need his, his help, his grace. So she is going to be a form to you of God's grace and God's love. And I'm sure that you felt that and are convinced of that now, right? Amen. So the next verse, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And as he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed him up in his, in his place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and other mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So second, we see marriage is a gift of completion and now commitment. They leave their father and they commit to each other. So God gave marriage as the first and most important of all human institutions. Long before there were governments or churches or schools or any other social structures, God established the home based on promises that you make to her and she makes to you. That's it. And this promise is to commit to being spiritually, emotionally, and physically faithful to one another for your lifetime that you are alive together. There's no expiration date on any marriage certificate. Don't even try to check. <laughs> but there is one larger purpose to marriage that we're going to talk briefly about, and that it's, that it's a picture of Jesus and his church, all of us together. His great love for the entire world is given to us in this picture and what you guys are doing right now. Adam was put to sleep, just like Jesus was put to death. Adam awoke from sleep with a wound in his side. A rib was gone. Jesus was resurrected and he had a wound in his side. And the wound from Adam's side, God formed a bride. And from the wound in Jesus' side, God formed his son, a bride as well. The church. To illustrate how much he loves each one of us, Jesus calls us his bride in the New Testament. We have a heavenly bridegroom. He is our groom. And those who trust him for their eternal life, we can call him our, or we're called his bride. And every wedding and every marriage is an illustration of Jesus Christ's love to those who believe in him, whether they like it or not. So all the marriages out there, they're talking about Jesus and they don't even know it. Well, Ted and Diane, your marriage is to be an illustration of God's love for people. 
for men and women, as you love each other with a supernatural love, that's how you'll accomplish that. Your love for each other will be a witness to this world of how much God loves them. Okay? It's bigger than you guys. It begins as an illustration today. As we proclaim to, uh, to your wedding guests here today that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, he was their sacrifice on the cross, and he's a living Savior, that his wounds, his pierced side, his nail-pierced hands and feet, they were for every person in this room. I'm taking this opportunity to tell that to everybody. It was for them that he wanted to be their bride, and he wants it today still. So any person here today can surrender to him, believe what he did for them, and become his bride supernaturally in their hearts today. Now I'm going to read you real quick what the Bible says about your roles in marriage, okay? Um, we'll start with you, Diane. So your part's the best. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he, as he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands and everything. And in that, I just want you to remember that the Lord values your husband. He values him. And you're called and you're choosing to do the same thing, to value him. Even when he's a goober. Honor him, because God does. God loves him. God respects him. So you be that for him. Ted, that was your part. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does his church. For we are members of his body just and of his flesh and bones. And I want you to remember that Diane has been created with a deep and intense need to be loved. Sacrificially and unconditionally loved. And you are signing up to meet that need. To love her to sacrifice for her. Her needs come first in all things. And we're going to be watching you and hold you accountable to love her in this way. <laughs> he continues for you both, and he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It's all. It doesn't have to do with you. This is about God. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular love your own wives of yourself and let each wife see that she respects her husband. The problem comes in our relationships when we look at the other person's instructions before we look at our own. So Ted, no matter what your wife does, no matter how she treats you or how she hurts you, the way out is love and sacrificial leadership, period. Diane, no matter how dense your husband gets or is, no matter how self-centered or unloving he may be, 
The way out is always loving submission. That's how we trust the Lord. So do you, Ted, take this woman that God has given you to be your lawfully wedded wife? To truly love her, to truly cherish her, to have and to hold her in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, and forsaking all others, keep yourself to her as long as you both shall live or till Jesus comes back to take his church away. Do you, Diane, take this man that God has given you to be your lawfully wedded husband? to truly love him, to truly cherish him, to have him and hold him in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, and forsaking all others, keep him to yourself as long as you both shall live or until Jesus comes back for his church. Okay. All right. Um, Ted, would you repeat after me, please? I, Ted, take you, Diane, to be my lawfully wedded wife. I, Ted, take you, Diane, to be my wife. I do promise before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband, to love you as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it as long as we both shall live or Jesus comes back for his church. Diane, please repeat after me. I, Diane, take you, Ted, to be my lawfully wedded husband. I do promise before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful wife, to willingly submit as Christ has ordained as long as we both shall live or until Jesus comes to take us home. Well, I now have the joy of pronouncing you man and wife. We have a couple rings. Do you have a ring for him? I do. All right. We'll put it on his ring, on his hand, and say, with this ring, I thee wed. You got a ring for her? Say, with this ring, I thee wed. Now in the sight of God and with great joy, I pronounce you man and wife. And I would love to see you guys give a big old smooch to each other. <laughs> what, what we're going to do now is we're going to pray for these guys because we have so many things uh, um, to pray for. Uh, one is that Ted is sick and we want to pray for healing for him. Uh, we're digging ditches right now. We want God to fill with water, his healing and holy and wonderful water. So um, if you want to come up and lay hands on us right now, come up and anyone who wants can come up and we're just, we're going to lay hands on these guys. Father, we come to you with joy. Lord, we know that you look down in approval upon marriage, upon people wanting to commit and do things your way. And Lord, we know that you're happy in this. But Lord, it's not our works that really make you happy. It's the works of Jesus Christ, your son who bled and died and was obedient to the point of death and gave his life for us. So Lord, we call upon Jesus to heal Ted, to bring uh, life into this marriage, Lord, to give them joy and happiness. It is your marriage. 
These are your lives. These hearts are yours. I pray that you would free them from anything that holds them back, Lord, and and, uh, anything that the enemy is trying to do to discourage them. I pray that they would reject, Lord, they would follow you and your commands in all ways. Lord, I, I expect, Jesus, for you to send your water. We are digging ditches, Lord, and we pray that you'd fill it with your water. We pray for Ted's health. I pray that he would be healed by your power alone because you are a good father. You are a good God. Lord, we call upon you to show your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, we pray and bless this marriage. Lord, I pray that they would be joyful. I pray that they would have, Lord, all that is in their hearts, Lord. Thank you for the commitments that they have sealed up today. And I pray that it would be nothing but joy for them. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you guys.